Welcome to Lymphoma Myeloma 2018, an international conference on hematologic malignancies here in New York City. With me today is Dr. John Leonard, who is the chair of the lymphoma section. Uh, Dr. Leonard, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. One of the interesting debates we had today at the conference was the uh, benefit of adding bentuximab vidotin to the uh, AVD regimen as opposed to ABVD. What is your take on which one should we use in untreated patients? Well, I think it's a great discussion. As the audience knows, brentuximab vidotin is approved and used in relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma as a single agent where it has great activity uh, and is useful second line, third line, uh, after transplant in certain situations. So the, uh, the study or the situation that you describe is really focused around um, can you substitute bleom for bleomycin in the ABVD regimen uh, by using brentuximab vidotin. And the net of that uh, discussion, the net of the studies around that issue uh, suggests that there is a progression-free survival benefit for the substitution of brentuximab vidotin for bleomycin in ABVD. That's when you're giving six cycles for advanced stage disease. Um, so the, the plus is that there's a PFS benefit. The minus is that that PFS benefit is somewhere around 5 to 10% difference. And there's no overall survival difference. And there's an incremental uh, excess or addition of some toxicity, primarily neuropathy and cytopenias as part of the combination treatment, uh, and the requirement for GCSF supplementation. So uh, it's really one of those uh, kind of questions where what is the value of a PFS benefit in the absence of OS with a little bit more toxicity, a little bit more cost. And as you highlighted in the meeting, uh, one of the issues there is around the use of bleomycin and the toxicity of bleomycin, um, which is becoming used less and less, or at least the number of cycles of bleomycin are becoming less and less in Hodgkin lymphoma uh, with the, the Rathel study that suggests that if you're PET negative after two cycles, you can delete the bleomycin from, from the cycles going forward. So I think it remains an interesting question. Uh, in my own sense, I think in higher risk patients, I lean more toward using it, and in lower risk patients, uh, I, it gives me pause. When you say higher risk patients, what do you mean specifically? Well, I think um, certainly uh, the risk factors around this include age, and, and we had some discussion around, uh, you know, the should you even use this in, in 60 years or older? Probably not, but I think um, there's some evidence that males have a less favorable prognosis in Hodgkin. Uh, certainly over in the patients in their 40s and above um, have some higher risk features. Uh, I think certainly bulky disease would be an area where you might think about it a little bit more as well. Okay. So bottom line is you use it, but very selectively. Exactly. Okay. Uh, now let's talk about another exciting topic that was discussed at the conference, and that is on CAR-T therapy. Where do you see CAR-T fitting into the schema of treatment of uh, refractory and relapsing lymphoma? Well, CAR-T cells, I think, you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg at this point uh, right now. Um, and the future will tell us, obviously, how big that iceberg will be, how big the, the tip will, will grow over time. Right now, CAR-T cells uh, have been approved in the lymphomas. They're also approved in a subset of ALL patients. But they're approved in the lymphomas for patients with essentially multiply relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I think uh, how I look at it in that patient population is that CAR T cells 
have a major benefit for somewhere in the ballpark of a third of patients. So I tell my patients a third of people will either not get to the CAR T cell therapy because their disease is too resistant, or the cells can't be made, or that they'll not respond to it. About a third of people will have uh, a response, but it'll be short-lived, say less than six months. And about a third of people will have a response that lasts at least six to 12 months, and that has the potential to be quite meaningful and durable. So at, at best, I think as of today, it, we're talking about one in three patients in that group having a major benefit. Now, the, the next step is okay, well that's important, and if you're that one in three people that has limited other options, clearly that's a good thing. How do we make that better? And so uh, what we heard today was discussion around uh, are there things you can do to make a CAR T-cell product work better that could be in the construct itself. It could be by adding drugs like immune checkpoint inhibitors that could potentially improve efficacy. Uh, are there things that can be done to modula modulate the toxicity profile? And then finally, where will we go as to different indications? Right now, they're in the lymphomas primarily uh, and really exclusively for patients with multiple relapsed DLBCL. Uh, when you have patients, should we use it earlier in the course of therapy? Will that happen? Um, will it replace autotransplant? What's the role in resistant follicular lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma? All of those studies are ongoing right now. Uh, one of the issues for the average doctor out there who has a patient who has relapsed, I think we all accept the premise that a refractory patient or a rapidly relapsing patient probably should go for CAR-T rather than an autotransplant because the likelihood of getting a good response and, and in particular a cure is rather so small. But what would you do with a patient who, let's say, has relapsed from large cell lymphoma two years following his treatment? Would you send this patient first to CAR-T or would you send this patient for an autotransplant? I would uh, give that patient second-line therapy and if they had a good response to the second-line therapy for a relapse patient two-year, uh, I would probably at this point, I mean we don't have data to show yet that those patients should go to uh, anything but an autotransplant. So that's what I would do at this point. Uh, yes, uh, that's, I, I think that's probably what most of us would still do. Now, uh, another thing that we heard today was a, a really outstanding exposition on the genetics of lymphoma. How do you use the genetics of lymphoma in treating your patients as we stand today with regard to ABC uh, and GCB lymphomas, uh, double hits? How do you structure your patients in terms of therapy? Well, it's a, it's a great dichotomy, I think, right now, where we have all of this emerging genetic data. We have a lot, and we heard from Margaret Ship today about uh, classification that her group has come up with now, uh, moving beyond the ABC, GCB as the dominant types to now uh, mainly five subtypes uh, covering much of the spectrum. Uh, to, uh, uh, so, so we have this excitement that really needs to be validated prospectively, really needs to be translated into a clinically actionable uh, sort of tool, meaning something that you could get from your pathologist or your laboratory and use in the practice, and then obviously link it to a clinical treatment that's going to be appropriate for an individual subtype. So we have that aspect of things which is quite exciting. Now on the other hand, we have the ABC GCB type that you referenced that we've had those data now for over 10 years. And as of right now, in retrospective studies, we see differences with ABC being less favorable than GCB. 
but unfortunately so far we've not seen any translation or change of that into a therapy, meaning that A, the prospective studies have seemed to enrich for more favorable patients, and that's a, a selection bias that's come in, and then our studies that have tried to randomize within those groups to one targeted or other chemo, uh, chemo regimen uh, versus another have been negative thus far, and so um, that is a multifactorial sort of thing. So again, 10 years later, after having ABCGCB, the clinical utility of that has been quite limited. And I was thinking today as I heard Margaret, I hope we're not going to be another 10 years hearing her classification before it actually translates into benefit for patients. So in a nutshell, in large cell lymphoma, we're really not uh, in a data-driven way using the ABCGCB classification or any of the molecular classifications. We're still left with primary mediastinal, you use an infusional regimen, uh, double hit, you may use an infusional regimen based on imperfect but reasonable data, and pretty much everybody else in a data-driven way gets treated with RCHOP, which is more or less where we were over 10 years ago. We heard a very interesting debate over whether obinutuzumab uh, offers any advantage over rituximab uh, in the treatment of the lymphomas. How do you view uh, the differences between the two? We know that in many of the studies that they use a great deal more protein, if you would, or antibody for obinutuzumab than they do for rituxin. And there was a an article many years ago written by uh, Dr. Susan O'Brien who showed that as you increase the dose of rituximab, you increase the response rate. Do you think there's any advantage in using obinutuzumab over rituximab in the various lymphomas? Well, I think you raise a good point. I mean, one is if there's a difference, is that difference due to the dose which, and, the, and the schedule of the drug versus the drug itself? At this point, for better or worse, we're left with comparing rituximab at one dose and schedule versus obinutuzumab at another dose and schedule. Whether or not that's appropriate, that's what we're left with. So at this point, accepting the limitations or criticisms of, of those differences, um, I think what we're left with is that in CLL, we have data that, that obinutuzumab, the newer anti-CD20, is better than rituximab in CLL, certainly when you combine it with chlorambucil in older patients and probably in some other settings. In large cell lymphoma, the Goya study was basically no difference at all um, as far as the primary endpoints of the study. In mantle cell lymphoma, I would say we have very little data at all. Um, so there's no reason to use that as I see in, in, uh, in mantle cell lymphoma. And the question and the focus of our debate today was on obinutuzumab in follicular lymphoma. Obinutuzumab is approved uh, in re uh, recurrent follicular lymphoma based on a study comparing bendamustine obinutuzumab versus bendamustine alone. The criticism there is that there's no rituximab in that, in that group, so it's antibody chemo versus antibody, and in that scenario, the combination has always won throughout our history in the last couple, uh, couple decades. Uh, in follicular lymphoma, we have the gallium study, which suggested that uh, chemo-obinutuzumab versus chemo-rituximab, both arms with maintenance for two years, had a progression-free survival benefit, but not an overall survival benefit. So I would say that uh, on that basis, and that, the, that benefit um, is relatively modest in the range of 5% or so, give or take. Uh, 
So in my mind, there's really no reason with uh, uh, follicular lymphoma upfront therapy, there's not a compelling reason to use uh, obinutuzumab based on the magnitude or the lack of magnitude of the benefit in PFS. Uh, it also commits you more or less to a maintenance therapy, which may or may not be what you and your patient choose. I think that the data are a little bit stronger in follicular lymphoma, and I think the, uh, the impetus to use obinutuzumab if you're using bendamustine uh, in the relapse setting, the data seem to be, in my mind, a little stronger and a little more compelling. So in my practice, that's where I tend to use a little bit more in the relapse setting. Yes, and we heard an interesting, thank you very much, John, and we heard a very interesting lecture by Dr. Jonathan Friedberg on the value, on whether there is value of vitamin D. What is your take on vitamin D? Well, I, I was excited that we uh, included that topic. As you recall, that was something that I was particularly uh, in favor of including in the agenda. We like to have uh, kind of topics that are a little out of the mainstream occasionally, but are important and practically important to people in practice. And so vitamin D is one of those things that, as you know, there's a lot of data suggesting uh, in lymphoma, as well as other cancers, as well as other medical issues, that high vitamin D levels or normal vitamin D levels uh, are associated with a more favorable outcome than insufficient or low vitamin D levels. And of course, the question and the issue uh, relates to number one uh, is uh, what is a normal level? And there are geographic variations around that. And Jonathan pointed out that in Europe versus uh, in the U.S. and in different parts of North America, based on sun exposure, normal levels, quote unquote, may be different. Um, but the other big part of it is, is, the, is whether or not the vitamin D level is a marker of a more or less favorable outcome or is a cause and effect. And so ultimately, one would have to do the study of taking lower vitamin D level patients with lymphoma and randomly assigning them to uh, no, uh, no intervention versus giving them vitamin D. And in fact, he highlighted, I think, the proper way to do this. And there are a couple of studies, one of which we're participating in in Cornell, where uh, we are taking follicular lymphoma patients uh, who are getting rituximab and randomizing them to rituximab placebo versus rituximab plus uh, vitamin D uh, to some degree based on their levels. You know, one of the problems that I encounter is just about every patient that I draw a vitamin D level on, I get a report back that says they're deficient. Uh, in your practice today, would you give vitamin D to a patient who seems to be vitamin D deficient and has lymphoma? Well, I think uh, there are certainly people that espouse that. We've been participating in this study, and I think it'd be nice to answer the question, so we try to do that. But in my mind, it's hard to argue, particularly uh, given the, the magnitude of the at least correlation with a, the magnitude of an effect uh, or difference, um, as well as the relative inexpense uh, of vitamin D. Although I can tell you I have had uh, an occasional patient who has overdone it with their vitamin D uh, and run into trouble with calcium levels and other things, and you have to be mindful of stones and other associated things that could, could confound that. Mantle cell lymphoma seems to be a real problem for us. Most of us really don't know how to approach it. Should we do an autotransplant or should we not do an autotransplant? Should we give hydrosarase or should we not give hydrosarase? Should we give maintenance or shouldn't we give maintenance? Uh, what is your take on mantle cell? The, those patients that require therapy, there are some, of course, that we can observe. 
Well, I think more you in one question just packed in about three hours worth of lectures and debates and so on. So uh, that's, as you know, a topic of the meeting here. And I think uh, one of the great things about the meeting is you can really get into this in detail and the pros and cons. And at the end of the day, someone in practice, rather than having one answer, because there aren't one answer to one, one data-driven answer to what you've posed, I think people need to understand the nuances so they can figure it out in their own mind for an individual patient and obviously talk to their patient. Um, much of mantle cell, as you allude to, has been driven by patient features, meaning age, you know, younger patients getting treated more aggressively, older patients getting treated less aggressively. I think a couple key points uh, uh, to, to highlight, there are still indolent mantle cell lymphomas largely based on clinical parameters, so watch and wait in mantle cell uh, is certainly reasonable. Older patients tend to get, in the U.S. at least, bendamustine-based therapy, probably with maintenance rituximab, although there's some debate about that. Younger patients um, can also be treated the same way, and we often do that, um, but in many would argue for an autotransplant. Uh, if you're pursuing an autotransplant for a progression-free but not necessarily overall survival benefit, uh, some would argue that you should use a, an ARC-based regimen, although I can tell you certain centers are using BR followed by autotransplant with seemingly good results as well. Maintenance for tuximab has become more standard based on overall survival benefits. If you're doing an autotransplant, three years of maintenance for tuximab has an overall survival benefit. And then really what uh, has changed and continues to evolve is other agents that are used primarily in the relapse setting but are being explored up front. And those range from, uh, from uh, bortezomib, which goes back uh, probably 10 years in mantle cell. Uh, lenalidomide has an approval in relapsed mantle cell. Uh, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib now approved uh, in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. And so the questions really come up, can you use them up front? Can you use them in combinations with, uh, with one, one approach or the other? Um, do you use them for later? How do you sequence them? Those are all things that I think uh, remain uh, in flux and, and in active uh, investigation. So uh, I think mantle cell lymphoma keeps evolving, keeps changing. The good part is it seems like overall survivals are improving, generally speaking, and we seem to have lots of novel agents that are coming along that one uh, can, uh, can consider. I think the, the, the key question that you uh, alluded to, and probably the most important question is, do you have to do an autotransplant, or should we be, we be recommending an autotransplant in a patient who's younger and a candidate for that? And the answer uh, is really best going to be answered, I think, with uh, an ongoing intergroup study, which basically says you have a new mantle cell patient, they uh, are young and fit or a transplant candidate, you give them whatever you want to give them for their induction. You can pick whatever you want, and then you assess. And if the people that in uh, that are in an MRD negative CR, um, which is a high percentage of people, those people are getting randomized to maintenance for tuxan or maintenance for tuximab, or maintenance for tuximab after an autotransplant. So it's really going to ask the question: If your MRD negative CR, your prognosis is generally better or good. Do you need to do the transplant? So that's, that's the big question, and I think uh, it's an important study. Well, the other issue is, suppose you're not uh, MRD negative, would you go to the transplant? Well, I think that's a group of people that is going to have a less favorable outcome. You could argue to do a, an autotransplant, and in fact, that study says, you know, if you're in an MRD positive CR or, an MR, or a 
uh, PR, regardless of your MRD, that you go on in that study to get an auto transplant because your prognosis is, is less favorable. I think the other thing that, that's come out that we have touched on here at the meeting is the fact that P53 mutations, um, less so deletions, more mutations, seem to have an important prognostic uh, 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 importance. Uh, and that patients getting treated with the Nordic regimen, a fairly intense regimen, as you know, who have P53 mutations do not do well. Whereas some of the novel agents like abrutinib uh, and abrutinib combinations seem to do reasonably well in that patient population. So it's arguing that if you have a P53 mutation, perhaps you shouldn't go down the chemo route at all, but use a novel agent. And in fact, uh, we have some ideas about trying to uh, test that hypothesis because it seems like giving somebody in that scenario heavy chemotherapy is probably not going to be successful in the long term. Since you mentioned the Nordic approach, uh, the, the people uh, from the Nordic area swear by a high-dose RSC. Mm -hmm. Do you also ascribe to that in patients who are not going for transplant? No, I have. As a routine, I if they're not getting a transplant, it's not something that I would pursue up front. Um, there are some bendamustine combinations looking at it, but I don't think that we have great longer-term data. I think if you're going to do a transplant, there are several studies suggesting that RSC-based therapy uh, has some advantages. Yes, uh, one of the other issues, of course, is it looks like that when you go for a transplant, you've been selected out mm -hmm. just to do well. And there is never a plateau to the survival curve. Uh, in your practice, prior to the results of this randomized study, which is being pursued, do you send your patients to transplant who are young and fit and seem to do well? No, I, I, uh, that is not my main approach. There are some patients where we choose that. Certainly the PR patients, we would uh, consider that uh, a little bit more. But I think um, what is more of a driver is the uh, mantle cell IPI, the clinical features that go along with that, more than the therapy. And in fact, if you look side by side by the MIPI score at older patients treated less aggressively and younger patients treated more aggressively, if you correct for the MIPI score, the outcomes aren't all that different. And in fact, it turns out that most of the most of the patients getting transplanted have low-risk MIPI scores, and when you compare low-risk transplanted patients to low-risk, less aggressively treated patients, the outcomes are not all that different. Well, thank you so much, John. We really very much appreciate your observations on the conference today. This is Dr. Morton Coleman wishing you good day from Lymphoma Myeloma 2018, an international conference on hematologic malignancies here at New York City.